We're now up to the sixth church of Revelation, the church at Philadelphia, which means brotherly love or love of the brethren. That's right. Interesting, the uh, progression of the characters of the churches. Here we have this wonderful little church. Really, uh, brotherly love is a good description of it. Uh, it's a little jewel set in the seven churches, sandwiched between uh, the dead orthodoxy of Sardis and the worldliness of Laodicea. And uh, if you have your chart that I handed out last week, yeah, good. Uh, how many of them have? Let's see. Let's see a show of them here. Okay, that's better. Okay, good. I like to see that. You notice in the last column. Um, I, I've been saying a lot, as we've been going along that uh, the sequence of seven seems to be uh, a parallel with the actual history of the church through the ages. And uh, you'll notice as we come to Philadelphia, these are kind of arbitrary titles depending on who you read. You know, they'll have different titles. But uh, I call Philadelphia the missionary church. And it seems to correspond historically to about the 17 and 1800s. These are all very rough. Please don't be, uh, you know dogmatic about these numbers on here now, these dates, but roughly the 1700s and 1800s of uh, the outreach of the church throughout the world. Really, it was the age of missions, if you will. We're kind of at the tail end of it now, as well as the age of great revivals. And uh, on either side of it, you have the lifeless church, which really corresponds to the the dead formalism of the uh, post-Reformation church, state churches and so on. And then, of course, on the other side of it, in time, is the, the last day's church, the complacent, complacent church, which we'll uh, look at when we pick up next time, the church at Laodicea. So here, uh, in the setting of the Bible, here's Philadelphia sandwiched between Sardis and Laodicea, life amid deadness. And uh, let me just say, now that we're on this subject of the history here, that... Um, these, these periods really overlap one another, if you look at the history of the church. It's, it's not like, uh, well, okay, 100 A.D., you know, whoosh, okay, the apostolic church stops, and now we have the persecuted church. And then in 300 A.D., that stopped. You know, it's, it's not really like that. There's overlap. Uh, there was really persecution from the first day, wasn't there, in the church. But it really uh, was at its greatest extent roughly during the time between 100 and 300 A.D., the reason I'm saying that is because, really, even though I have the lifeless church here, the, the, the formal dead orthodoxy of the post-Reformation church, as 1500 to 1700 AD, there's really an overlap. And in fact, we have that in the professing church even to this day, don't we? You know, orthodoxy, right doctrine, formalism, really in much of the professing church. But lifelessness, a name that they're dead, uh, that, a name that they're alive, excuse me, and yet they're dead. And so it is, the, the living, vibrant little church of Philadelphia didn't stop in 1900. There is it even today. God has a, a strong testimony for himself, even in these last days, in the, in the midst of uh, Sardis and Laodicea. So let's get a breath of fresh air in our trips to the churches of Revelation and look at the church uh, at Philadelphia. We'll begin in uh, chapter 3. In verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly, Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, if, you, if you notice the uh, outline here, there's something interesting about the church at Philadelphia. You, you might have picked it up when we read it, but there's a blank here. There's no what? What's missing? That's right, there's no rebuke. Uh, the two churches, Philadelphia and Smyrna, the Lord Jesus with his piercing gaze at the life of the church and the life of the believers, found nothing to find fault with and has only uh, words of commendation for them. Okay, well, he begins, uh, and we'll, we'll follow our sections here on the outline as we have uh, at, in each of the churches. He begins with a vision of himself. He says, These things says he who is holy and he who is true. Holy and true. Pure in conduct, that's the Lord Jesus. Holy and pure in speech. True. He's once again demonstrating to the church here and to us his right and his perfect qualifications for pronouncing right judgment. Now here's a phrase, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. It looks like a new subject, but it's not. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 22. This is really keeping in line with his description of himself as the one who is holy and the one who is true. I love uh, these little sections of the, of the big prophets, the major prophets, uh, where God is going along and he's, and he's listing uh, just judgment after judgment on the nations, on the nation of Israel, and then he'll... Uh, interweave a promise of the millennium or something like that, but just prophecy after prophecy, but then he'll, he'll break it with a little story. And I like that when I'm reading along in the major prophets. And this is one of them. I don't know how many would be familiar with this, but you learn about a fellow named Shebna here in Isaiah 22. Interesting fellow. We'll start reading in Isaiah 22, verse 15. And we're going to find out where this, this concept of he who has the key of David and opens and no man shuts comes from. Isaiah 22, verse 15, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulchre here, as he who hews himself a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of, his, of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now, that's pretty much all we know about this guy, Shebna. He's, he's mentioned by name in uh, Kings, but that's it, just in the list. But it's intriguing, isn't it? Who is this guy? And we can kind of deduce some things about his behavior. First of all, he's the steward, you notice, of the house of David. He, uh, he has the key because it's taken from him and given to Eliakim. He's responsible, perhaps for appointing in offices, perhaps for opening the treasury of the king's storehouse. Perhaps that's also symbolic of the key. 
But uh, what he's done here, if you, if you uh, followed that, apparently he has made himself a great tomb. He's, he's apparently dipped into the treasury and profited from his service as steward in, in the Lord's house. And uh, he's apparently ready you know, to die and be buried in this great tomb where uh, he's going to be famous for the rest of whatever. And so that's why God says, I'm going to throw you like a ball. You're not going to die here and go into that tomb. It's going to stay empty. You're going to die off in a foreign land somewhere, and that tomb is going to be wasted. I'm going to make sure you don't make profit from your stewardship. The point is, you see, Shebna was a man who profited, applied to himself uh, his, his responsibilities and, and, and his power as a steward for the Lord. He abused the responsibilities that God had given him. Can you think of anybody else in the Old Testament that did something like that? I, I, I was reminded of somebody else. Yeah, very good. Gehazi, or Gehazi as we say in America. The uh, servant of Elisha. Remember after Naaman was healed? And Naaman was so overjoyed, he offered some uh, money and some clothing to Elisha. And of course, God forbid, you know, that's not the point. He needs to know the Lord. And he refused it. And of course, uh, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, then came along and remember and, and profited again from his position uh, in the ministry of the Lord. God hates that kind of stuff. You know, We have it today. People who make money off of the gospel. And so, Shebna is a picture of somebody like that who profits off of uh, serving the Lord. Well, by contrast, there's this uh, faithful man, Eliakim, that God is going to raise up, and God said he's going to give him the key uh, to the house of David, and he's going to open and no one will shut. So he's a picture, you see, of the Lord Jesus. So this is not a new phrase. Turn back to Revelation now. And so the picture, you see, it's a, a great picture of the Lord Jesus continuing talking about his, his faithfulness in the house of the Lord, his, his serving the Lord. Uh, Isaiah... 53, it says that the, the, the good pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I love that phrase. You know, whatever the Lord wants done, you can trust Jesus with it. That's, that's what that says. The Father could so trust the Son that he could give him anything to do, and he, knew, he would know that it would be done right and done well. I, I want that to be said of me. Don't you? You know, the, the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And that's the Lord Jesus. So, that's what this phrase is talking about here. He's, he's the faithful one, the holy and true one. Again, he's going to speak judgment. He does that in every case. And so, it's like he's telling, before he speaks the words of judgment, he introduces himself as one who's capable of doing that. <laughs> who's fit for that kind of a job. You know? And, of course, these phrases are very... Uh, Appropriate when applied to the Lord. When he opens, no one shuts. His sovereignty, you see. When he shuts, no one opens. No one is going to uh, countermand his order. He's sovereign. Well, here's that phrase again. We see it in every letter. He says, I know your works. And I like to, I like to kind of imagine what it would have been like in each of the churches. Remember, this would be circulated through the churches of Asia Minor at that time, and certainly through the seven churches listed here, to the church at Philadelphia, right? He's writing it to the church at Philadelphia. And he would make sure that this letter that John wrote would make it there, and that it would be read to the congregation. Imagine when this letter comes, it, it arrives, and they're met on the Lord's Day, and a brother stands up to read this letter from Jesus himself. Imagine, to the church. And they've been hearing, they've heard five churches so far. And there have been some pretty sharp rebukes, haven't there? And they hear the, they hear the words, I know your works. Maybe a pause, you know? What do you think would go through their minds? What, I, I, I'm sure they're all waiting with bated breath. You know, what will Jesus say? He knows our works. There's no, uh, there's no hypocrisy he doesn't see through. You know, there's no veneer that he doesn't penetrate with his piercing gaze. What does he see? What's he going to say? You know, 
How would you feel if the Lord looked you in the eye and said, I know your works? I think of uh, the disciples at the Last Supper. And it's, it's really an insight into, boy, the holiness of the Lord Jesus. And uh, just our awareness of, of our own shortcomings when we really recognize who he is. Because you remember what he said? He said, one of you will betray me. Remember that? It's interesting how he said, one of you. He didn't single anybody out. So there's the twelve. You know, one of you will betray me. Remember what they did? They began to look at each other. And they looked at him and it says, every one of them said, is it I, Lord? Isn't that interesting? You know, Judas didn't go, oh no, you know, he found out. <laughs> I'm the guy. It's interesting. Every one of them said, is it I, Lord? As, as, he, as he said that, you know, what, what happened was, they realized every one of them was capable of it, you see? They, they examined their hearts when he said that, one of you will betray me. And they knew their sinfulness. They knew him. And they knew they couldn't hide anything. And uh, they, they were caused to reflect on their lives. So I have no doubt that was uh, the, the thought that went through many of the believers at Philadelphia when they heard this read. But he's a righteous judge, praise God. He, he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he penetrated to the false professions at uh, Sardis. It's interesting to contrast the three churches here at the end. Um, Sardis, remember, they had a name that they lived. You know, that facade. You know, we live. And, of course, that corresponds to probably religious activity, you know, and maybe even right doctrine. But they were dead. They weren't even saved. And so, uh, later at uh, Laodicea, they say, uh, I am rich. And Jesus says, you say that, but you're poor. He cuts through, you see, the facade. But here at the little church in Philadelphia, the Lord Jesus looks through the surface and he sees a, a genuine heart of faithfulness there among the people. So he says, I know your works. And uh, it's interesting, he says, I know your works, and then he turns around and says something that he's done. You notice that? I know your works. He says, see, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Well, here, he's, he's carrying on with the idea about having the, the uh, key, remember? And he said he opens, and no man shuts. He says, for the church of Philadelphia, he had opened a door. And uh, it's one that no one can shut. Well, when we read this, of course, we tend to think right away of uh, the letters of Paul, where he uses this phrase, right? Sounds familiar. First uh, Corinthians, he says, For a great and effective door has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Second Corinthians, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. So the door here is apparently a door of service. And it's interesting that, uh, you notice how he says it. He says, I have set before you an open door. He didn't push them through. You know, he didn't make them go in. He just set the open door there. And that's what he does with us. We're not just talking about evangelism here, but any service for the Lord. He will give us an opportunity. You may have been praying about it. You know, maybe you've been praying, Lord, give me an opportunity to serve you. Or maybe you have been praying for an open door in evangelism. You know, Lord, give me an opportunity today or tomorrow. And he'll, he'll do that. You ever seen him do that in your life? And he'll set the open door there, but he's not going to push you through. And I love the way he does it. He sets it there, but then it's up to us, isn't it, to go through that door. And I think we have to confess, sometimes he'll put that open door there and we won't even see it. Sometimes we've been praying about it. And there's the door and we miss it. Or the door is there and it's like, nah, I'm not ready to go in yet. But that's the marvelous working, you see, between the divine and the human. He'll, he'll set the open door right there, 
He'll, he'll get the handle and there it is. Just walk right through. But it's up to us to cross that threshold. And apparently from the way he talks, uh, this little church at Philadelphia had, had gone to the door, you see. Had seized that opportunity. It's interesting, when you, when you read these words, you may think, um, oh no, a rebuke. Because he says, uh, you have little strength. You notice that? After the door, no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Is that a rebuke? No. Um, now, if he said you have little faith, that would have been a rebuke. In fact, he, those are the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels, right? Oh, ye of little faith, right? When they miss the point. But we're never rebuked for having little strength. In fact, it's a good thing to be someone of little strength. Do you know that? Listen to uh, Paul when he talks about this subject. He said to me, this is Paul talking about the Lord. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's right. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then, what? I'm strong. That's right. And it's good for us to always come back there, isn't it? It's good to remember our weakness. Without him, apart from Jesus, we can do what? Nothing. That's right. And I don't know about you, but I constantly lapse into the uh, trap of thinking I've done something or how, how great I am, you know. And that nothing could be further from the truth. We're, the, we're in the safest place in the world when we recognize we have little strength. When we're weak, then he can be strong. And so really, I, I see this as a commendation. I think it also has to do probably, they were to make a church. You know, you, you get this picture of this little group of faithful believers there in Philadelphia serving their hearts out for the Lord. And uh, he set this door. We don't know exactly what it is. They, they would have known probably when the letter was read, but he had set this door before them, and obviously they had, with their little strength, they had gone in, and, and with his power working through them, they had served him in a mighty way. But I was thinking about this, uh, this open door. You know, God continues to do this in little ways, individual lives, where he'll open doors for us one by one, and in, in great worldwide ways as well. Uh, the most recent example of him opening a door that no one can shut, that came to my mind, was uh, the fall of the Iron Curtain in Europe. Boy, what a, what a miracle that was, huh? I remember being at Fairhaven, oh, it was the late 70s, and uh, we had a brother who uh, visited us who had been smuggling Bibles into Russia. Boy, what stories he had to tell. And uh, kind of to, to, to summarize the attitude of not just the, the Soviet Union, but the whole Soviet bloc, which is atheist, by the way, you know that. You know, communism is, re is a religion also, and the religion is atheism. He talked about going down the street in uh, Moscow one day, and there was this big poster, and uh, it was a cosmonaut floating out, you know, free from the capsule, with a little uh, umbilical cord going to him. And he's going like this, and it's said in Russian, it says, where is God? In other words, he ain't here. That was the idea, you see. Kind of a boast, really, of the Russian government. You know, we've gone out, we sent these guys into space. We're looking for, God isn't there. There is no God. You know? Boy, talk about a closed door. You know? And now look today. I mean, the, the doors are wide open, and, and not just in Russia, but in the, in the whole Eastern Bloc. God has pulled them down, and they can't get enough of Bibles and of the Gospel. I'll tell you, they have meetings over there. Somebody gets started preaching the Word or teaching, sharing the Gospel, and uh, they'll have a building that has a capacity maybe like this for 160, and they'll have 1,000 people show up. And they'll be going out the, the door there. People that are out of earshot... They, they uh, do telephone, you know. They relay to each other what the speaker's saying to the people that can't hear. And after two hours, they plead with them not to stop. <laughs> Isn't that great? And of course, it shouldn't surprise us. You know, there was such a vacuum that had been created uh, from lack of the gospel. And so I think it's a marvelous act of grace that in the last days before 
the Lord himself comes, that he swung open this wide door uh, to the Eastern Bloc countries. So we don't know what exactly the door was, but uh, they knew. And uh, he had opened it, and apparently they had been faithful in going through and serving him. He says, uh, you have kept my word. Notice again the importance of doctrine in uh, the church. And then he says, you have not denied my name. When you study the Bible, look at every word. Every word is important. Ask yourself, why does he say it this way instead of that way? Those are good questions to ask. And here, in the case of his word, he said, you have kept my word. But when it came to his name, notice, he didn't say, you have been faithful to my name. He said it in a negative way. He said, you have not denied my word. You notice that? The other one's a positive statement. You've kept my word. In regard to his name, he says, you have not denied it. It's interesting. Why? Because that's the temptation, isn't it? There's something about the name of Jesus. People will listen to just about anything, even from the Bible. But have you ever noticed? I see some smiling, nodding faces. You get to the word Jesus, and all of a sudden, the conversation stops. You ever notice that? There's something about the name of Jesus, and we know that. And sometimes we sense that, and we'll avoid using that name. <laughs> Because we know the effect it'll have. You know, we'll talk around it. There's a temptation to do that because that's the world is trying to get us to do. Tell us anything, but don't tell us that name. Don't talk about that name. It's interesting. You've been seeing it in Acts, right? Sometimes there are so many neat studies you can do in the book of Acts, by the way. Little threads that run through it. For example, the Holy Spirit. Um, or the active work of the Lord Jesus himself in the book. Another one is the appearance of the phrase, his name. It's a wonderful theme that goes from the beginning of Acts all the way to the end. The name of Jesus. If you remember earlier on when Peter and John were preaching, the name of Jesus is all over the place. Uh, the fellow that uh, was a cripple, remember, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Remember that? Then when they were called before the Sanhedrin and, and all the uh, Jewish leaders, they said, uh, let it be known that in his name this man is healed. And so when they were done with them, they charged them, that they, and when they sent them on their way, Peter and John, they said, don't preach or teach anymore in his name. Do anything, but leave Jesus out of it. Don't talk about Jesus. That's an encouragement to me, you know, because that says that the, the opponents of God hate that. That's a good thing. I want to do that, you know. I want to provoke uh, the enemies of God. I want to be found using the name of Jesus a lot. Right? Elsewhere it says in Acts, you know, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Philippians 2. That at the name of what? Jesus. I think, I think everybody's going to hear that. They're going to hear that. That name. It's going to be an audible sound. Jesus is going to be declared. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. So the church at Philadelphia had been faithful. The, the name of Jesus had been found often on their lips. Okay, uh, like a few of the <clears throat> previous churches, they have some enemies, and they're introduced here in uh, verse 9. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Well, we've got a few tough phrases in here. We'll take them on. Um, first of all, he says, Who say they are Jews and are not but lie. These aren't Gentiles pretending to be Jews. In fact, it's not anybody pretending to be Jews. By physical birth, they were Jews. But really, this is, this is like uh, the conversation Jesus had with the Jews in John chapter 8. You see, they're not descendants of Abraham spiritually. They're not true sons of Abraham. That's what he told them in, in uh, John 8. He said, if you were sons of Abraham, you would have believed me. And so the idea is, is they are Jews and are not but lie. 
It's not somebody posing as Jews, but he's, he's just saying they're not true children of faith. They're not true children of Abraham in that sense. Uh, beyond that, we shouldn't be surprised. You, you're finding it in the book of Acts, right? That probably the main persecutor of the church and opponents of the gospel in the early days of the church was who? The Jews. And so it is in Philadelphia. And apparently, uh, in that little town, the, the greatest opponents to the gospel and to the work of the Lord was the local synagogue. Now, it's interesting, the Lord Jesus says that he's going to reverse the situation there, and he says, I'm going to make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Okay. First of all, he is not going to have them come and worship the Christians. That's not what he's saying here. I think you understand that. What is he saying? Well, I think it'll help to understand if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 14, because there's a very similar phrase there. This isn't the only place in the Bible where you find something like this. is better because people are going to understand you. And he gets down to verse 24 and he says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is judged by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That's the picture, really, back in Philadelphia. That's the scene. It's the same kind of a scene. Here he tells the Corinthians, look, if you guys come together, you preach the word in a, in a language that's understandable you know, to the people present, and you honor the Lord, then in that case, and it's interesting, by the way, he says, if an unbeliever, an unbeliever happens to come in. The picture here, again, as I've said before, the church is for believers, right? God designed the church for believers. And today, of course, the church is redesigned to accommodate unbelievers, but here in the, in the New Testament times, it, he's saying if an unsaved person happens to come in, that's the picture. Anyway, if they do, and you're preaching the word, the Lord Jesus is being honored, and they see uh, your, your living relationship with him, then it's going to have an impact on that unsaved person as they see this, and they're going to fall down and worship God and report that God is among you. And that's what he's saying to the church at Philadelphia, you see. And so he's saying, uh, you're getting opposition from this Jew Jewish synagogue right now, but uh, somehow he's going to arrange it so that uh, this Jewish synagogue sees the light. I don't know it was going to be all of them, but some of them. And uh, they're going to recognize that God is truly with this little congregation. Uh, people often ask me, it happened uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, they'll have a friend who's unsaved and they'll say, uh, you know, I'd like to invite this person out. Do you mind if they come to Breaking the Bread? And, uh, you know, to be honest, I'd love to see an unsaved person visit the Breaking of Bread. We've had people get saved at the Breaking of Bread. I don't mean partake of the elements, obviously. But uh, in seeing 1 Corinthians 14 actually work out in the local assembly, you know, I would say, looking back over the times we've had visitors, I think the meeting that's had the greatest impact on a visiting unsaved person is the breaking of bread, which is only supposed to be for believers. And I think it's because they come and there more than any place else, you can see the personal relationship, you know, that believers have with the Lord Jesus. It's unrehearsed. You know, people don't get up and read lines. They just speak from their heart how much they love the Lord Jesus. I say, you can't fake that. And people come and they see that. And, we, and as you know, we've seen people saved at the breaking of bread. Now, I don't, that's not God's design for the breaking of bread to save people. But it, it, I think it's a, an outworking of what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 14. And to the church of Philadelphia. You know? If we really are living a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus, and it shows in our meetings, particularly breaking of bread, I'll say that's going to have a testimony. You know, to people. They're going to see it. Now, I'm not saying let's all of a sudden start, you know, making our, 
our uh, worship service, our, our Lord's Supper, uh, an evangelistic meeting. I'm just saying, the, the Lord's Word works out in real life. It really does speak to, to people. Okay, back to Revelation here. Notice what he says at the end. I like this. Um, again, think of all the ways he could have said this. When uh, he says, the needle will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know... Now, he could have said a lot of things. He could have said, and to know uh, that I am in your midst, or to know that you serve me, you know, or to know that you follow the one and only true living God. He could have said a lot of things there that would have been appropriate. But do you notice what he said? He says, they'll know that I have loved you. Isn't that great? They're going to they're gonna pick up on the fact not that uh, they have right doctrine, you know, or that they have a, a real spiffy band up front, you know, or something like that. But they're going to see the love of the Lord Jesus for them. And that's the way it should be. I, he, didn't, he didn't even say, and they will know that you love me. I, I would have thought he might have said that. You know, They would see their great love for the Lord Jesus. But he says, they will know that I love you. And that's true. If you look at a, a life of a real strong believer who just loves the Lord, you, you don't end up looking at their love. You end up seeing the love of Jesus for them, don't you? Because you realize whatever they're doing, whether it's service, you know, uh, or, you, or, you, or you see their changed life for him, they, they look beyond it and recognize that there's something behind that. There's something that's causing that. We didn't just go out and reform our lives. There's something behind the change in our lives. It's the love of Jesus. Like Paul said, the love of Christ constrains us. You know, constricts our lives to a, a narrower focus to live for Him. And so he says, uh, they'll come and they'll, they'll, as they see you meet and they see your lives, they're going to come, and come away recognizing that I love you. I, that, that's great. And, uh, okay, finally we end up with the, uh, the final commendation before um, the reward. He says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Okay, well, you might not have noticed it, but we're already beginning to lapse into... Uh, the language of the rest of the book of Revelation. It's interesting. Uh, there are three phrases here that are now going to be repeated throughout, as we go through the tribulation and the second coming of the Lord. Uh, there are phrases here that he's introduced for the first time right here to this little church. First of all, before we get to the notice, he commends them for perseverance. We talked about that last week when we looked at Sardis, remember? Sardis, the church of professors. It's easy to exhibit initial or periodic bursts of faithfulness. We can do that in the flesh. But it takes the indwelling Spirit of God to produce a consistent, persevering Christian life. Only the Spirit of God can do that. I'll tell you, these fleshly bodies weren't made to do the work of the Lord. Can't do it. It's impossible. Only the Spirit of God. And particularly in a sustained fashion. And so, it's important, he says, your perseverance. They're, they're hanging in there. They're day after day after day faithfulness. You've heard the phrase. Uh, people use it jokingly. They say, you know, yeah, it's easy to quit smoking. I've quit 50 times. Right? Well, you carry that over into the spiritual world. I know people who could say, yeah, it's easy to repent. I've repented 50 times. You know? That's not what the Lord is looking for. Uh, as Gene used to call him, um, there are some places where it's, it's quite a habit for professing Christians to make their annual pilgrimage to a summer, summer camp and rededicate their lives. It's really big back in the South, in the East. You know? It's like an annual tradition. 
Christians uh, are backsliders 11 and a half months of the year, and then they go to a Christian camp and rededicate their lives. Gene calls them re-deads. It's probably a good good phrase, you know. But that's not that's not true Christianity, is it? You know, living for the world, living for self, and they get all pumped up at some camp. You know, come back all jazzed for Jesus, and then you're right back into the world again, you know, for the next eleven and a half months. That's not the church at Philadelphia. Okay, the phrases that I talked about. First of all, he says, "I will keep you from," and literally the preposition there is out of. The hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Now that's interesting. Uh, when is that period? When is, the, when is the great trial going to come upon the whole world? Well, that's the tribulation really ultimately, isn't it? And he says, I will keep you out of it. If you look at this closely, the rapture is really signified in two places. That's the first one. He says, I will keep you out of the hour of trial. I'm not going to sustain you through it. You're not going to be in it. I'm going to, you're going to take you out of it. And the second one is, he says, Behold, I come quickly. If you remember to the church at Sardis, he said, I'm going to come like a thief. Remember that? To both churches, he, he reminds them that he's coming. But to the church at Sardis, the empty profession, no life, when he comes, it's going to be like a thief. Now, that's not the rapture. Because when he comes as a thief... For unsaved people who say they're Christians, it's going to be a second coming. Because that's when they're going to be taken away. And it's not going to be uh, to heaven. It's going to be for judgment. You see, it's a thief. He's going to rob them of their good times. Whereas here, he uses a phrase for the first time that's going to recur throughout Revelation. And really, uh, it's as much an encouragement as it is uh, a statement to true believers. I come quickly. You know, depending on where you are spiritually, that's either a warning or it's an encouragement, right? Amen. Right, Norman? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, if you're really waiting and longing for him to come, that's, that's encouraging. Those are good words. But uh, if you're settling down and, uh, you know, finding a niche in this world, then the response will be something like, not yet, Lord. And uh, that's where the second phrase comes in. In my version, it says at the end of this, uh, that this hour that's coming, it'll test those who dwell on the earth. Okay, that's a key phrase in the book of Revelation. You're going to see it from here all the way through to the end. And literally, uh, in the original, it's earth dwellers. You say, well, what's the difference? In the original, it's painting a very graphic picture of somebody who is very content. Their home is right here. Their beginning, their end, their all is right here on the earth. Okay? Um, their enjoyment, their satisfaction, their life is wrapped up right in the here and now on this planet. I don't know, maybe I'm describing somebody here today. If so, let me tell you, you're not going to find pleasure and satisfaction and happiness and peace here on this earth. You're going to find it in Jesus. And he's going to test, he's going to try. He uses those two strong words, he's going to test and he's going to try those that are dwelling on the earth. You know that the tribulation is going to be a time of... The, the best way to use those words, testing and trial, is like trying metal in a fire. And it's like the Lord is going to take the population of the earth and He's going to put them in the fire. And the fire is going to be suffering and judgments from heaven. Uh, anarchy, lawlessness throughout the... If you can imagine, forget governments. There's going to be anarchy everywhere. You know what it's going to be like for an individual living here? You see, the point is, right now we live in a nice, peaceful country. Most people do. They tend to. You know? Uh... Mankind can get away with right now saying, you know, look, we're basically good. There is no God, or if there is, we don't need Him. And God is going to use that time to strip away that facade. And when, I'll tell you, when, when things start hitting the earth out of the, out of the heavens, you know, you've, you've heard of the asteroid scares, what's really going to happen? And all the other judgments start coming and there's lawlessness throughout the earth. People are going to behave 
the way they really are. And civilization, as we know it, is going to disappear. And the purpose of God in that is going to, uh, to show the heart of man for what it's really like. So I'm not going to be able to get away with saying, you know, look how great we are. Uh, look how wonderful we are. We're basically good. That's the idea of trying. You see, you try metal, it separates what's real from what's fake. And that's the idea. He's going to try the earth. But uh, he's going to spare the little faithful church in Philadelphia. Certainly a picture, I believe, of the believing church in the last days. And as we uh, draw toward the end of these, these churches now, you can really put all three of them together as existing at, uh, in the end times. The dead orthodoxy of Sardis, boy, we've got it around us right now. The worldliness, the compromise of Laodicea, it's all around in the professing church. It dominates it. Both of those do. But praise God, in the midst of the professing church, the Lord Jesus has his faithful ones. He has his little Philadelphias. And, and, and it's to the church at Philadelphia that he says, I'm going to uh, deliver you out of the trial that's going to come upon those who dwell or who nestle down on the earth. Okay, then his, uh, his uh, reward. I love this reward here. I hope you've been picking up on those as we've been going through. Uh, they sound a little strange at first, but when you look at them, they're really uh, marvelous things that only the Lord could do. Here he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And so now don't get the picture here of, you know, Jesus writing with a ballpoint pen on somebody or something. It's, it's a picture of a reward. First of all, the first phrase, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. The, the idea there, a pillar in the temple. Okay, great place to be in the temple of God, near to God, right? And a pillar is there all the time. It doesn't go out. That's the idea. He says, that's going to be your home and you're not going to go out anymore. You're going to be near to me. From there on out. You get the picture? The pillar is there permanently. Uh, it's interesting that uh, when Solomon built his temple, there were two pillars. In fact, they actually had names. They named them. And I, I think that may be what the Lord has in mind here. You know, you're going to be like those pillars. But it's like uh, the ending of Psalm 23. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. That's the idea he's saying here, you see. Wouldn't that be great? You know? You won't have to go out into the world anymore. You won't be exposed to things that are contrary to me anymore. You'll be a pillar in the temple of God. Okay, now what about the, the names here? He says, I will write on him. Well, the idea is that the one who receives this reward is going to have such a close identification with the Lord Jesus. There's going to be such a close relationship. You know, it's the idea of identification. We have this today. Uh, you ever seen people wear, like, a sweatshirt of the Raiders? You know, of the 49ers? Or wear a shirt with writing on it? You know, that somehow they associate with? Right? You've ever done it? You know, you see somebody from a company or something, and they'll have the name of the company. The idea is they're identified, you see. With that, whatever it is. It could be a cause. It could be a religion. You know, it could be an event. You know, Woodstock or something. But the point is, people wear shirts with writing on them to show that they identify with that. Right? The problem is, shirts fade. They get old. You get too big for them, you know? You take them off. And so, the Lord Jesus is not going to give you a sweatshirt. <laughs> With these things written, you see, the identification is much closer than that. He doesn't say, I will write on his shirt, you know, this man loves me. Or this woman loves the Lord Jesus. He says, I will write on him. Isn't that great? You see, that's the idea. It's a close identification with the Lord Jesus and with the things of heaven. Now, not everybody's going to get this. Notice, it's just like all the other rewards he's talked about. This is a special reward for certain people. I'd love to have something like this. 
the Lord Jesus Himself is going to write it. So if He does it, you know it's right. You know, He supports it. It's right. It's good. So a wonderful little reward there. And then, uh, as to all the other churches, He says, "He who has an ear, let him hear." what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we haven't pointed it out yet, but this is probably a good time. Um, this is I don't know if you picked up on it, but this is a great uh, example of a proof text for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? Didn't even pick up on it. You need to be writing these things down as you go through the Bible. You've done that, haven't you? You're reading along, and all of a sudden you say, wow, that shows clearly Jesus is God. You ever done that? Write it. Make a note of it. Pretty soon you're going to have a Bible full of red marks. Who's been, who's been speaking here? That's right. I, uh, uh, he says, these things says he who is holy and so on. These are all the Lord Jesus. Here he says, um, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Isn't that interesting? That doesn't mean that they're the same, okay? That's, that's a heresy. But, you see, it's God, ultimately, speaking. God the Son is speaking, and God the Holy Spirit is speaking. One voice. Okay. Well, may we hear what the Spirit says to the church in Philadelphia. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this little excerpt here to the church at Philadelphia. And, uh, Lord, we do want to worship you as the one who is holy and true. Lord, you're the faithful servant as depicted by the one who has the, the key of David and who can open and no man shuts. What a faithful servant, what a faithful steward of the things of God you are. Thank you, Lord, most of all, that you were discharged with the duty of working out our, our salvation. And you did it perfectly. Lord, may we in turn now, in light of your faithfulness to us who did not deserve it, may we be found faithful to you. Lord, may we be like this little church at Philadelphia who, though they had little strength, were great and strong because of you working through them. May we be found with your name spoken on our lips often as they were. Lord, help us, we pray, to be faithful to you. May we be faithful to the end, the overcomer that's listed here. Lord, we'd love to have written on us these things you talk about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.